This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. What? Reading and then understanding and even trying to make sense of the Bible can be overwhelming, right? Now you get to passages like that about horrific violence seemingly done in God's name, in the name of a loving God. So what do we do with that? How do we even understand that? See, with, some right, with the right tools and some study, I think we can start to make sense of some of the most misunderstood and misused passages in the Bible. And in doing so, we might even change how we see God and our neighbors. So let's talk about it together. So what I just read is one of the most disturbing and confusing passages in the Bible, especially after maybe learning about who God is through Jesus and the Christian scriptures where Jesus says, you know, you may have heard it said it's eye for an eye, but I say, turn somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other one. He says, love your neighbors and pray for the good of those who persecute you. And then we see that God is love in the Christian writings. So then trying to make sense of this apparent discrepancy has caused really a lot of different reactions. It's caused people to outright reject Christianity, outright reject the idea of God. Like, I can't believe in a God who would actually do this. Or it's brought about like this broader idea that the Bible is full of God's wrath and that God is this bloodthirsty being who condones genocide and things like that. And this confusion, really, it's not anything new. In fact, it's been around almost from the beginning of Christianity. Marcion, around 140 AD, this thinker, uh, theologian, basically because of this type of passage, rejected all of the Old Testament as scripture. He actually taught that there were two different gods. The Old Testament God, who was this evil creator God, who was against the, the loving God that we find in the New Testament. See, misunderstanding and misusing scripture has caused rejection, confusion, and hurt for centuries. So what do we do? Well, usually we choose one of two options, right? We either reject all of it and be like, this is, I don't want anything to do with this. Or most of us, we ignore it and avoid it and move on to the stuff we like, like the Jesus stuff, right? But if, as, as Paul wrote, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for training us how to live in God's kingdom, then there has to be a better solution. And I think there is. See, when we take the time to study the cloudy parts of Scripture, our view of God becomes clearer. And so I want to use some tools that we talked about in our last series, how to read, understand, and use the Bible. And I want to walk through what's going on in this passage, and then in the next three episodes, what's going on in some of the most misunderstood and misused passages in the Bible. And what I hope to do is, is give an example of how you can do this for yourself if you ever get stumped reading something confusing. So what do we do with this passage about killing all the Amalekites? Well, first, like we talked about in the past series, we need to use good tools. So first, we need a good translation. For me, I'm using the New Living, the NLT translation, because I just really like how it puts it in modern day words. But there's the CSB, the NIB, NIV, the NASB. Those are all great translations to use. And in this passage, they pretty much all say the same thing. 
You need a good Bible dictionary. Today, for example, we're going to use a free Bible dictionary that we found on BibleGateway.com. We're going to use Easton's Bible Dictionary, which is really 200, almost 200 years old. And so, yeah, it'd be great to get a brand new Bible Dictionary, but I want to show you a free version of what you can do with that. And then you need a good commentary. And I just happen to have, from a different series we did years and years ago, Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on 1 Samuel. And so we'll dive into that a little bit later. And then second, we need to read this passage literarily. Like get an idea of what this passage is about. And honestly, at the Bible Project, they have a great seven-minute overview of this entire book. And so in it, we see that the genre of 1 Samuel is narrative. And so there's characters in this story. There's, there's God, there's Samuel, who's the prophet of God and who anointed the first king of Israel. And then there's Saul, who is the first king of Israel. And the plot of this book, we find out, is that God's chosen people are attempting to live as God's people in God's promised land in order to bring in God's promised kingdom. There's three key themes in 1 Samuel. First, that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Second, that despite human evil, God is at work. And the third theme is that God will raise up a messianic king. And so we see all of that in our overview. And then third, as we study scripture, as we study even a confusing passage, we need to follow a rhythm. So as we go through this passage to understand what it's saying and using our tools, we'll use the rhythm I usually use. And so first we discover the genre and the historical context, which we kind of just did in that overview. So it's a narrative. It's telling what happened. So again, that means it's not a code of conduct, code of conduct for our lives now. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. It tells what happened, not what we need to do. And so when does it take place in our six-part play? The part that we call Israel, where God is creating this nation to show the world who he is and to usher in his kingdom. God is creating a nation to bring a king, to bring his king and his kingdom through which to bless the whole world in the brutal world of 1000 BC. So again, this is designed for us to, is not designed for us to copy and do what they did in their part of the play. It's describing how God interacted with them in their time, in their culture, in their place while they're playing their role. And then next step in our rhythm, we need to read the context of the whole text. So next in our rhythm of study, we need to read the context of the whole text. And so the context of where this lands historically is that Israel was brought out of Egypt with Moses, right? Then as they are forming their nation, they're ruled by judges, but they want to be, they want to have a king like everyone else. And so God tells Samuel, this the prophet, to anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. And through Samuel, God then tells Saul later on to totally destroy, which we read, the Amalekites. And as the story goes on, I'm not going to read the whole thing, Saul kind of does. He kind of obeys and he kind of doesn't. See, God tells him to destroy everything, but Saul keeps the king of the Amalekites, the good sheep and the goats and the cattle all alive. And that makes God mad. And Saul doesn't obey, so he gets rejected as king of Israel. And Samuel actually ends up killing the Amalekite king in a very bloody way. So the original point we find out in this passage is not really about the violence. It's even worse than that. It's, it's the fact, the main point is that Saul refused to obey God by carrying out all of the violence God told him to do. And so now in our rhythm, we engage the text. We read the passage and we ask questions, any question that comes to mind. So let's do that. One day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. 
This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. So, what? Like, you just read that out of the blue. Like, what are you talking about? First of all, who are the descendants of Amalek? And what account needs to be settled for them? Like, what is that all about? Well, in Easton's Bible Dictionary, we look up the word Amalekites. And here's where it sends us. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. And so then they go and attack the Amalekites because the Amalekites attacked them. And Moses has to hold his hands up while his hands are held up. Uh, the armies win. When his arms are down, they lose. So his helpers hold his arms up for him. It's a pretty interesting story. But then, so that's the first mention of the Amalekites. And then we're sent to Deuteronomy 25. And this is God giving like commands to the nation of Israel. And he says, Never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land he is giving you as a special possession, you must destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Never forget this. So this is 300 years before Saul. So 300 years earlier, a group of nomadic raiders had attacked the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. And really, they had been a problem for the Israelites ever since. And so now we have a little bit of background of who these Amalekites are. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So my question is, what did God mean when he said to completely destroy? destroy. And I know that there's something special there because my Bible has a little asterisk there. And it takes me to a note at the bottom of, of this passage. And it says this, the Hebrew term used here refers to the complete consecration of things or people to the Lord, either by destroying them or by giving them as an offering. And then we can go even further to blueletterbible.com and click on that phrase. And we find out that it's the Hebrew word harim. And then we can go through, we can look at what that means, or we can even look it up on Wikipedia and see what harem means. And it means to fully give them over, just like what it said at the bottom of the Bible. So what God's saying is something like, give the Amalekites over to me. I will now fulfill my promise that I gave you back 300 years ago. And so God promised, the question, God promised to deal with the Amalekites 300 years earlier. So why did he wait so long? 300 years is a long time. The United States isn't even 300 years old. Why wait so long? What's going on? Well, one thing we can know, it's not because God just wants to kill people. As we go further in, in this story, on verse 6, we have this. Saul sent this warning to the Kenites. Move away from where the Amalekites live, or you will die with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites packed up and left. See, they... Saul, under God's authority probably, uh, warned the Kenites to move away. Don't get involved in this fight because you showed kindness to our people when we came in from Egypt. So why this destruction of the Amalekites? Might it have to do not with God's bloodthirstiness, but more with his, his goodness and his kindness, why he waited so long? So we have a lot of questions. So now we need to ask the experts. And so what we find out by reading this this 
one commentary. Usually good to have two or three, but for just for our point now, we'll use one. The main point for the author writing this, and the main point for the listeners, is what we said. As God's chosen king, Saul's responsibility was to obey God. But in his pride, he thought he knew better. And so he disobeyed and therefore was rejected as king of Israel, which then ushers in, like this is a turning point in the whole story of Israel, because this then ushers in the need for a new king, where Samuel finds a shepherd boy named David, through whom now the promised king will come someday. But what the writer kind of sweeps by, sweeps past, is really the thing that really gets us, right? We don't really care about Saul's disobedience. It almost seems like a good thing. What we care about is like, why the slaughter? That is our question right now. Why the slaughter? And as a good commentator, Ralph Dale Ralph Davis actually doesn't, uh, doesn't allow us to skip this tension. He brings it up. He points out the issue with the Amalekites is justice. To begin a response, first, it is horrid. Second, our claim is only that scripture is true, not that it is sanitized. Third, Yahweh, Jewish word for God, Yahweh's vengeance should not be repudi repudiated but praised if it is virtuous vengeance, that is, if it is a just vengeance. And he goes on to explain it. If the vengeance carried out is if the vengeance is carried out for a just reason, by the embodiment of justice, God Himself, then actually this is a just and virtuous vengeance. See, we all want justice. Think about it. You want justice. We all want justice until it's pointed at us, right? And so we remember that, as from our studies, that the Amalekites did a sneak attack on the rear of God's people, the, the weak ones, the stragglers. They raided them and killed them. God's, they did a sneak attack on God's chosen people when they were exhausted, running away from slavery. These are former slaves trying to get to freedom, and they went behind them and killed their weakest people. And so what we're seeing here is God's justice being carried out. And the person he chooses to be, his early Iron Age instrument of justice, refuses to do it and instead keeps some of the plunder for himself. And so you might say, yeah, okay, justice, I get that if it was 300 years ago, but this is 300, 300, 300 years later. These people are not the same people who did the evil things. That was their ancestors. Like, this doesn't seem just. Good question. Well, Davis points that out as well. See, he says... 1 Samuel 15 indicates that Amalek, the, the Amalekites, had not changed over the years. Note that Samuel refers to the current generation of Amalekites as sinners in verse 18. Check that out. And announces Agog's, the king of the Amalekites, war crimes as the basis for his execution. Verse 33. Is Yahweh not slow to anger when he gives them 300 years to repent? See, the text tells us that these people were sinners, meaning their culture hadn't changed. They hadn't repented. And not only that, the king was guilty of war crimes. So do we want war crimes to go unpunished? Absolutely not, right? But God gave them 300 years to repent, 300 years to make amends, and they still had not done it. They still had not improved in any way. And so what we see is that a theme throughout scripture is that God is quick to forgive and he is slow to anger. But this people group hadn't sought reconciliation for centuries. In fact, they'd become even worse. And now it was time for God's promised justice. That's why that idea of harem, of giving over to God, was righteous. Because a righteous God was fulfilling his righteous promise of righteous justice. 
which is why it was so bad for Saul to disobey, because he is refusing to be God's instrument of righteous justice. And God will bring justice in his own time and manner. Then as an example of our longing, we do, we have a longing for God to be just and bring justice to evil. Davis pulls us to the end of the Bible in Revelation 6. So this is like view into heaven about God's justice and kind of end times type thing. When the Lamb, Jesus, broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? See, think about it. Would God be loving if he didn't bring justice to the guilty? No. Sometimes justice isn't just for the individual either. As we see in 1 Samuel, sometimes justice is for our whole culture. Sometimes systematic abuse needs God's justice. Systematic sin, systematic injustice that is in, in interweaved throughout the whole culture needs justice. And so in this passage in 1 Samuel, we see one of the main themes of the book play out twice in the same story. The idea that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. He opposes the proud Saul and he opposes the proud Amalekites and gives them both the justice that they need. Now, one final thing. When we look again at the Bible dictionary, we see the Amalekites show up again in 1 Samuel 30, like way past. They, in fact, the, these Amalekites attack David and his men's families and, and take them captive. And the Amalekites are still at attacking the Israelites. And David has to battle them to get the people back. But if you're thinking through it, you thought, well, I thought all the Amalekites were wiped out. Well, one thing we learn from other studies is that the ancient people often used hyperbole when writing about war. And so it's possible that it wasn't about killing every living thing of the race. It was hyperbole, it was exaggeration, but trying to make sure that its power structure, its ability to pass on the systematic injustice was destroyed. And so the last step in our study rhythm is do something with it. So what do we do with all that? Like, that's some really fun stuff to explore. And if you're really Bible nerdy and whatnot, you can really get into it. And it's, it's, it's a blast. But what do we do with all that? Because if it's just for knowledge, then it's pointless, right? Well, what have we learned about God? First, don't attack his people when they're coming out of slavery. Like, that seems like a no-brainer. But honestly, it seems to give us some insight into how God feels about people fleeing their country of origin. An example would be what he says to his people in Exodus. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. It really shows us how God views how we treat those in need. And so how do we apply that? Well, who's around you? Or who is in society that needs help instead of attacked? Who's vulnerable? Who needs our help? A second thing we see in this is that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Exactly like Jesus then says in the book of Mark. He, Jesus, sat down, called the twelve disciples over to him and said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. And so our application to that could be we need to avoid pride 
and arrogance. If we want to live in God's kingdom, be God's people, he opposes the proud but gives but exalts the humble. So we need to choose to humbly trust in God and humbly trust in his plan. But third, and I think this is the big one for, for us today, is that God gives justice to his people in his own time and in his own way. See, God's justice is both comforting and freeing. We can read into it that it's terrifying if you're on the other side of it, and it seems like it is. But for his people, God's justice is both comforting and freeing. We can be comforted in God's justice because God is in control. And he will do what is just and what is right in his perfect way and in his perfect timing. And we can be free because of that. We can let go of our fear of others and even our resentment of others because God has it covered in his perfect justice. It's what Paul wrote about in Romans. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And then Paul again in 2 Thessalonians says, And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. See, God will take care of it. We don't have to fight for ourselves and get justice for ourselves. We can forgive. We can love others because we know we belong to the true king of justice. He will take care of it. He will do what is ultimately just in his perfect way and perfect timing. So when we ask God, God, where is the justice? We can take what we know about God from the Old Testament writings and trust him enough to choose love. And as we are now in Act 5, our, our role is bringing in the kingdom of God to earth now. We can be inspired to use his love to work for and pursue justice for others. We don't have to fight for ourselves, but we can try to help others. And so as we think on this idea of God's justice this week, as we saw in his dealing with the Amalekites, let it transform you. So I encourage you this week, maybe once a day, read Romans 12, 19 through 21, which I just read. And then after you read that, pray this, God, help me forgive, help me to love, and help me to trust your justice. Show me how to lovingly pursue justice for others. So does that, all that study, does that perfectly answer every question about violence in the Old Testament? Probably not. But using these tools can add to our understanding of God can add to our appreciation of who he is and even help inform us as we now play out our role in his kingdom today. When we see God more clearly, we see our role in his story more clearly. Thanks for watching part one of our new series, Think About It. We're gonna have a few more of these episodes coming your way, so make sure you like and subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening on the podcast and watching on YouTube. We are Cross Creek Community Church. We are a church in Salem, we are for Salem. And this month, July, we have an opportunity for you to be for your neighbor in a new and special way. Hope Pregnancy Clinic is located on Market Street in Salem. Uh, they are collecting or they need diapers, wipes, and baby board books. So we'll be collecting those things that are in-person gatherings 
on the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 4.30. There's also a link to their Amazon and Target wish lists in our show notes. But this is a great way to be for your neighbor, uh, to show a mom some love, and check out more about Hope Pregnancy Clinic and the work that they do in Salem. It's a pretty neat place. We have a link to them in the show notes as well. Thanks for watching. We hope to see you at one of our in-person gatherings on the second and fourth Sundays of the month in July and August. The dates are on the screen and also down in the description. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.